Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, once again. And uh, once again, we're opening up with a reprise of a song called uh, The Free Syria New Song, which was posted to YouTube by one Abayid 2000 back in 2012, back in the early days of the Syrian revolution, before everything got so ghastly and complicated. Things were already getting pretty ghastly by uh, Assad regime massacres of peaceful protesters, but uh, it was before the Assad regime had actually escalated the genocide, as it has over the past few years, and before numerous uh, imperial powers and regional powers intervened in the conflict, most prominently Russia, Iran, Turkey, and the United States. And over the past week, we have witnessed what we have been fearing for months, those of us who still support the Syrian revolution, which is that the regime and its Russian sponsors are finally launching their offensive on Idlib province in the north of the country, the last which remains under the control of the rebels and the opposition. This had been anticipated as far back as September, but it was forestalled due to global outrage, which prompted Russia and Turkey to work out a deal where their forces are jointly patrolling a so-called demilitarized zone through Idlib, separating the forces of the Assad regime to the south from those of the rebels in opposition to the north. But in the intervening months, certain facts have changed on the ground, which we will discuss later in this podcast, which are now allowing the regime and Russia to get away with breaching the ceasefire and apparently launching a drive to finally conquer Idlib, which will bring nearly all of Syria back under regime control. And I just want to uh, contrast a couple of headlines from the mass media over the past 24 hours from the time at which I am ranting, which is uh, the afternoon of May 12th, 2019. Two headlines which exemplify contrasting ways what's happening in Idlib can be viewed or portrayed. I'm going to start with one from CNN, that which is always accused of having a uh, liberal bias, quote-unquote, Syrian army kills terrorists in Idlib countryside, and kills terrorists is in quotes within the headline, at least, but it's still a pretty irresponsible headline, and it's relying almost entirely on the Assad regime's own state-run news agency, Sana. The lead reads, the Syrian army is launching, quote, intensive strikes on dens of Jabhat al-Nusra, end quote, a group formerly affiliated with al-Qaeda in a village in southwestern Idlib province Sunday, Syrian state media is reporting. Now, finally, further down in the text, it does get around to mentioning some of the civilian toll, as reported by the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. But if you just look at the headline and the lead, which is what most people do, you're just going to get the impression that the so-called Syrian army is, you know, killing terrorists and the Syrian army, quote-unquote, are the good guys. Now, how many ways is just this lead propaganda? Let's just deconstruct this lead. The Syrian army is launching, quote, intensive strikes, etc. Okay, it's actually not the Syrian army. The Syrian army, for starters, Syria is divided. And really, 
if you're going to have any sense of distance or objectivity about the whole thing, you should really be saying the Assad regime army. And even that would not be accurate because many of the airstrikes, at least, are being carried out by Russia. And many of the forces on the ground are not actually the Assad regime army, the official army, the Syrian Arab army, as it is called, but irregular paramilitary and militia forces, which have been co-opted by the regime, many of them Shiite sectarian militias, many of them actually brought in from Iraq and Iran and from Lebanon, such as Hezbollah. So right away, use of the term Syrian army, which is not in quotes, is an irresponsible shorthand at best. All right, then we get to the part which is actually in quotes, intensive strikes on dens of Jabhat al-Nusra. Okay, now dens is a propaganda word. Wolves live in dens. This is implicit dehumanization of the enemy. That's a propaganda word. The same kind of propaganda which is at work in statements from uh, pro-Assad websites and media sources, not quoted in the CNN piece, where they more explicitly refer to um, Syrian rebel forces as jackals and rats. So dens is a propaganda word. Then we move on to Jabhat al-Nusra, or the Nusra Front, which is strictly inaccurate. Jabhat al-Nusra no longer exists. It's been disbanded. And the reason they're saying Jabhat al-Nusra is because Jabhat al-Nusra was affiliated with al-Qaeda. And a few years back, when they broke their links from al-Qaeda, they changed their name and dropped the name Jabhat al-Nusra. We'll talk later on in this podcast about what they evolved into. We still don't like them, mind you. I don't like them. (laughs) I think that they are a bad bunch, but um, they are no longer Jabhat al-Nusra. And then it goes on to say a group formerly affiliated with al-Qaeda. Right, well, CNN at least has the decency to tell you that they are formerly affiliated with al-Qaeda, but doesn't actually correct the inaccuracy of calling them Jabhat al-Nusra when that is no longer their name. So, numerous media distortions right there in that lead. And, you know, isn't it funny that fairness and accuracy in reporting, so-called fair, and, you know, Noam Chomsky, have earned their reputations by deconstructing mainstream media reportage, but you will never hear them do this kind of deconstruction where, you know, the so-called liberal corporate Western media like CNN is just echoing Assad regime propaganda verbatim. When it comes to that, fairness and accuracy and reporting and Noam Chomsky are 100% asleep at the switch and completely fall down on their job and continue to peddle the fiction that there is actually a bias in the Western media against Bashar Assad. As well there should be, if only it were true. Imagine a bias against a genocidal dictator. Wouldn't that be terrible? And instead, exactly the opposite is true. There is a bias in favor of Bashar Assad in the Western media, overwhelmingly. And it goes on to say, Sana, the country's state-run news agency, also stated Saturday that the army's operations had destroyed multiple sites purportedly belonging to Jabhat al-Nusra in the southern Idlib countryside. Nothing about civilian casualties. The army killed and injured, quote, a number of terrorists who had breached the de-escalation zone agreement through repeated attacks on military points and safe towns, end quote, Sana reported. Like I say, further down in the text, if you actually read past the lead, which few people do, 
and read past the headline, which even fewer people do, then uh, there's some, uh, you know, context about the actual impacts on civilians from the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights and the White Helmets. Let's contrast this with the uh, coverage from TRT World, which is sort of the Turkish CNN. Their headline reads, Regime airstrikes kill at least 12 civilians in Syria's Idlib. At least 12 civilians were killed and dozens wounded on Saturday in the latest regime bombings in Syria as aid groups suspended activities in parts of the violence-plagued Northwest. So, interesting. Instead of the headline and the lead emphasizing terrorist killed, the headline and the lead emphasize civilians killed. And rather than referring to the Syrian army, it refers to the regime. Instead of implicitly legitimizing Assad as, you know, Assad's armed forces and affiliated militia as the quote-unquote Syrian army. Okay, now, obviously, TRT World has also got an agenda here. And the fact that they actually are doing, I would argue, far more responsible coverage than CNN in this particular instance is reflective of the fact that, uh, you know, the Turkish government has been backing the rebels and opposition in Syria. So, I mean, you could argue that, you know, maybe they're actually doing the right thing for, you know, political reasons. And certainly the Turkish government has got its own political and territorial designs in the Syrian conflict and is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a neutral actor. I absolutely acknowledge that. But nonetheless, it does not change the reality that TRT is actually doing more responsible coverage here. And CNN is guilty of the propaganda tactic of dehumanization of the victims. The exact same propaganda tactic which is used in mainstream media reportage of U.S. airstrikes or drone strikes on ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatnot, where inevitably the target is termed a terrorist enclave or a terrorist compound And the civilian, quote-unquote, collateral damage, to use that ugly phrase, is rendered completely invisible. Now, when mainstream corporate media uses this sleazy propaganda trick to sanitize U.S. airstrikes and U.S. killing of civilians, then, you know, fairness and accuracy in reporting, you know, jump into action. But when mainstream corporate media like CNN use exactly the same cynical propaganda in defense of Assad regime, airstrikes and targeting of civilians, dead silence. Idlib is not a terrorist enclave, quote unquote. There are 4.5 million people in Idlib, the vast majority of whom are non-combatants. Many of them are the internally displaced. Just over the course of this month that the... uh, Assad regime and Russia have been stepping up their airstrikes on Idlib, and over the course of the past week, as they've actually launched their ground offensive, 150,000 people have been internally displaced within Idlib, joining the 300,000 internally displaced within Idlib that already existed before the recent offensive, many of them having fled to Idlib as the last area of opposition control in the country from the regime's repression and bloodletting in Aleppo and elsewhere around Syria. Those 150,000 recently displaced are facing terrible conditions, essentially living out in the open. 
They've amassed along the Turkish border, hoping to gain entry, and Turkey is not letting them in, and they have no shelter whatsoever, completely unprotected from airstrikes. All right, now let's talk a little bit about what the actual political and military forces on the ground in Idlib are, going beyond the propaganda of a so-called terrorist enclave. Well, the reason that the Assad regime and Russia are able to get away with their offensive to reconquer Idlib at this moment, the reason they can get away with that on the propaganda front is that earlier this year, back in January, the group which had formerly been the Nusra Front took over much of Idlib province. Now, this is Hayat Tahrir Sham, or the Organization for the Liberation of Syria, HTS, which is basically, to oversimplify a little bit, what the Nusra Front evolved into after it broke its ties with al-Qaeda and started emphasizing Syrian nationalism as opposed to political Islam, at least a little bit. Now, they're still a pretty reactionary bunch, and I certainly do not support them. But they no longer are the Nusra Front. They are no longer affiliated with al-Qaeda, and they are certainly no longer interested in attacking the West, which is invariably what the reference to al-Qaeda invokes in the popular imagination in the West. Now, HTS was never covered by the, you know, supposed ceasefire, which was put in place late last year. That was a loophole in the ceasefire. HTS could continue to be attacked, which is why even with the ceasefire in place, Idlib has come under sporadic bombardment throughout this period. I believe it was in September the ceasefire was instated. And throughout this period, Idlib has come under sporadic bombardment by Russia and the Assad regime in the name of attacking HTS. Well, back in January, HTS took over much of Idlib from uh, the more secular nationalist rebel groups, which had controlled much territory there, under the umbrella of the Al-Jaba Wataniya Lil Tahrir, or the National Front for Liberation. So HTS pushed out a lot of the uh, National Front rebels into a small pocket of uh, neighboring Hama governorate, which is actually uh, under direct Turkish occupation. So this uh, you know, transfer of power in Idlib from the Turkish-backed National Front for Liberation rebel alliance, which was covered by the ceasefire, to uh, HTS, which was never covered by the ceasefire, provided the uh, propaganda justification for the current offensive, which we are now witnessing. But I have to hasten to emphasize here that the civil resistance forces continue to be active on the ground in many areas of Idlib. The unarmed, pro-democratic, secular civil resistance organizations and civil resistance networks loosely organized around the local coordination committees, which actually began the Syrian revolution back when it was a peaceful unarmed uprising way back in 2011 and continue to exist today after everything which has gone on in the country and have actually become in many areas where other authority has broken down have actually become the real structure of governance on the ground. They continue to exist in many areas of Idlib governorate and have actually held protests on the ground against HTS rule in some areas. And you can imagine that they, along with their HTS oppressors, are now coming under bombardment by the Assad regime and Russia. 
So please do not buy the propaganda that Idlib is a terrorist enclave, as if all 4.5 million people in the province were quote-unquote terrorists, and that there was no other political force on the ground in Idlib other than HTS, which is being inaccurately referred to as the Nusra Front in some coverage, including from, you know, the dreaded MSM, the mainstream media, like CNN. I'm also going to point out that the, uh, the UN had recently warned that an assault on Idlib could create, quote, the worst humanitarian catastrophe the world has seen in the 21st century. And that's quite a statement, given what's going on in Yemen, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and all too many other places around the world, and of course within Syria itself. But things could potentially get much, much worse in the weeks to come if this offensive continues. And I have been appalled by the lack of outrage now that it is finally underway. And making it all the more ominous still is that even after the UN put out this warning of an unparalleled humanitarian catastrophe from the assault on Idlib, the UN also reorganized its aid operations in Syria so that all relief work is now centralized in Damascus, which um, could impede aid deliveries to rebel-controlled areas. Up until this point, the UN has been using what they've been calling a whole-of-Syria approach, where they've actually got two directors on the ground for their aid and humanitarian operations um, in Syria, one based in Damascus to service those areas which are under the control of the regime, and one based in Jordan, to try to reach those areas which are under the control of the rebels, over the protest of the regime, which, of course, does not want any aid going there. Well, under this new reorganization, they're actually eliminating the post in Jordan, and all of aid operations are going to be um, coordinated out of Damascus, seeming to, you know, accept the regime's reconquest of the entire country as a fait accompli. And this could obviously raise bureaucratic and political obstacles and logistical obstacles to um, the delivery of aid to areas like Idlib, which continue to be, you know, those few remaining pockets of the country, which continue to be under the control of the opposition. So um, it seems to me that the, uh, you know, the UN is actually colluding with Assad and his design to basically exterminate the population in those parts of the country which remain under opposition control. And this is happening also as the regime is tightening the ring on the few other very small pockets of opposition control where um, the displaced have taken refuge, particularly uh, Rukban refugee camp in the south of the country near the Jordanian border, where similarly, just as uh, Turkey is not allowing the displaced to cross their border in the north and flee Syrian territory, similarly, the Jordanian authorities are not allowing the refugees at Rukban to cross the border into Jordan. So they've been trapped in this no-man's land between the uh, Jordanian border guards on one side and uh, Assad regime forces on the other. And the regime has been, uh, you know, cutting off aid into, the, into this pocket and uh, facing hunger and desperation. Many in these uh, besieged pockets have um, started to, in recent weeks, accept resettlement offers from the regime, as they're being called. But they must undergo a so-called security screening, that so-called transition centers which have been established by the regime for this purpose 
where reports now indicate that the men are being separated from their families and detained. And recall that the Assad regime has been accused over the past years, including by the United Nations, of a mass extermination of detainees, possibly amounting to genocide. So to those of us who remember, this brings back ghastly memories of the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia in 1995, where in the name of a uh, humanitarian operation, which was actually overseen by Dutch peacekeepers, the civilian Muslim population of Srebrenica in Bosnia was uh, detained by Serb forces, the men separated from their families and held, the women finally put on buses and, uh, and sent to territory controlled by the, uh, <clears throat> by the actual Bosnian government in Sarajevo. The whereabouts of the men, 8,000 of them, became the subject of an international investigation, and it was eventually revealed that they had all been killed and summarily dumped in mass graves. And the excavations and the forensic work to identify them is still going on today, all these years later. We could be witnessing a replay of exactly this happening in Syria right now. And once again, with the acquiescence of the United Nations, much of the world media, and most disgracefully of all, of the so-called anti-war forces in the West. And once again, as I ranted last week, I think it was, the pro-Assad position, which in effect means a pro-genocide position, has become the consensus position of the so-called poorly named anti-war forces, certainly in New York City and more generally in the United States and in the West. Just by way of a a brief anecdote, I'm not going to um, harp on this too long because there's other points I want to make regarding the position of um, progressive forces, so-called progressive forces here in New York City and the West. But uh, just by way of a little anecdote, um, last week, the uh, Syria Solidarity New York City peace vigil was happening as it does every Friday evening in Union Square. And we were standing there with our free Syrian flag and our banners and signs opposing the bombardment of civilian populations in Syria. And as is the case almost every week, some, forgive me, indoctrinated fool who thinks of himself as a progressive and an anti-war type came along and looked at our signs and was all upset and said, why are you doing this? The Free Syrian Army, the FSA, gases children, uses poison gas on children. So many things wrong with this one hardly knows where to begin. For starters, our signs didn't say anything about the Free Syrian Army. We support, first and foremost, the civil opposition, the civil resistance in Syria. And secondly, the notion that the, you know, that the rebels themselves used poisonous gas on rebel-held territory is utterly baseless. It is sheer, empty propaganda with nothing to back it up. Ask any bonafide human rights group, and they will tell you that all of the evidence supports the obvious reality that it is the Assad regime, which is serially now used poisonous gas against rebel-held territories, which is the logic of counterinsurgency. If you understand anything about the dynamics of insurgency and counterinsurgency, rebel forces almost never commit those kind of atrocities 
against the populace whose hearts and minds they are trying to win and maintain in order to be, you know, as Che Guevara and Mao Zedong put it, you know, fish swimming among the sea of the people. And it is counterinsurgent forces, such as most obviously the United States using chemical warfare such as napalm and Agent Orange in Vietnam, which resort to those kind of ghastly extremist tactics against civilian populations. So I asked this poor fool where he had heard that the FSA was using poisonous gas against its own people. And he said, oh, I read it in the newspaper. (laughs) And when I asked him what newspaper, he said, Democracy Now!, which, of course, is not a newspaper, but that's actually beside the main point. The main point is that Amy Goodman and Democracy Now! have repeatedly put figures like Noam Chomsky on the air every time that the United States either carries out or threatens to carry out airstrikes against Assad regime targets in response to a chemical attack in Syria, which has now actually happened twice. Every time that happens either actual airstrikes or threat thereof following a chemical attack, Amy Goodwin will invariably put somebody like Noam Chomsky on to irresponsibly raise the possibility that the chemical attack was actually a provocation by the rebels. And, you know, they'll be very careful to say, well, we don't like Assad. He's not a nice guy. And yeah, he could have done the attack. But who knows? Maybe it was the rebels. Completely irresponsible speculation, which then allows listeners like this heckler we had in Union Square to take away from the conversation what they want to take away from it and to go away with the impression that, in fact, the chemical attack was a provocation by the rebels against their own people. And I'm not going to actually read the verbatim, but uh, for an example of exactly what I'm talking about, see Amy Goodman's interview with Noam Chomsky on the episode of Democracy Now! that aired April 26th, 2017, in the aftermath of the Assad regime's deadly Khan Shikun chemical attack in northern Syria. You can read it for yourself, and you will see that Chomsky engages in precisely the cynical, disingenuous, and sinister propaganda that I just described. So, Amy Goodman and Noam Chomsky and Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting have got a great deal to answer for. Putting aside the more blatantly and dogmatically pro-Assad factions, such as International Answer, the Workers' World Party, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, International Action Center, etc., etc. Much to answer for in terms of creating a consensus position on the American left in favor of a fascistic and genocidal dictatorship. And what particularly frustrates me, as I believe I also stated in our podcast of last week, is that even those dissident currents within the left here in New York City and the United States, which do not support the Assad regime, but support the um, elements of the opposition in Syria, even they are divided. And I'm talking about, on one hand, those who support the general Arab-led Syrian revolution, such as the group that I work with, Syria Solidarity New York City, and those who quite specifically support the Kurdish revolutionaries in Rojava, the Kurdish autonomous zone in the northeast of Syria. 
and many, you know, uh, more sort of ideological anarchists are have been um, supporting the Rojava Kurds because the Rojava Kurds quite notoriously are influenced by anarchism. <laughs> the actual, you know, the Arab-led Syrian civil resistance is also less notoriously, <laughs> but also influenced by anarchism. And as I mentioned, you know, one of the early theorists of the um, local coordination councils and, you know, the whole model of council-based democracy, which has animated the Arab-led Syrian civil resistance from the very beginning of the revolution back in 2011, one of um, those early theorists, Omar Aziz, who later died in an Assad prison, was actually an anarchist, actually a, um, a left-wing anarchist. And the same kind of um, vision of, uh, you know, direct, organic, grassroots democracy from below, council-based democracy, uh, also influenced the, uh, the formation of the, uh, the local coordination councils, which were sort of the affinity groups, as we might call them, which were the grassroots decentralized structure of the Syrian revolution in its early days, and as I state, continue to exist today in spite of everything. Yet possibly, <clears throat> because, you know, Omar Aziz was a lesser-known figure than Murray Bookchin, the American anarchist thinker, who died a few years back, who uh, quite famously has been an influence on the Rojava Kurds, the, uh, the anarchist element which has animated the, civil, the, the sort of main Arab-led civil resistance in Syria is much lesser known to the outside world and has not won the kind of um, support from anarchists in the West that the Kurdish revolution in Syria has. And what we've seen over, um, particularly over the past year or so, that Turkey has massively intervened in Syria and sort of um, become the protector of the Arab-led opposition forces. This has had the effect of pitting the Arab-led opposition forces against the Rojava Kurds, because Turkey, of course, is completely hostile to the Rojava Kurds and to any notion of Kurdish autonomy or, as they call it inaccurately, Kurdish separatism. And this is really, really a tragedy. And I will point out that just a few years ago, in uh, 2014, 2015, when ISIS took over much of Syria, there was actually an alliance. The, the Kurdish forces in northern Syria, the Rojava forces and their uh, militia, the People's Protection Units, actually formed an alliance with Arab-led militia of the Free Syrian Army to fight ISIS in the northeast of the country. And that was a real inspiring moment and a real glimmer of hope for building Arab-Kurdish solidarity and unity for a democratic vision of Syria's future. But it didn't last, largely because of the intervention and the meddling of foreign powers playing their you know, great game on the chessboard of Syria and pitting the local forces on the ground against each other. And all of this has been quite considerably worsened by recent events in Kurdish-held areas of Syria in the northeast of the country. Just as the Assad regime has launched its offensive on Idlib, there has been a big escalation in the areas immediately to the east, which are controlled by the Kurdish forces, particularly controlled by the so-called Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF, which is an alliance of the main Kurdish militia, the People's Protection Units, or YPG, which has been massively backed by U.S. airstrikes, by U.S. air power, and by embedded U.S. troops, embedded Green Berets, 
in their campaign against ISIS. And the recent final defeat of ISIS and the last pocket of ISIS-controlled territory being taken by the Syrian Democratic Forces has left many Arab-majority areas of the region under occupation by a Kurdish-led force. And this is a situation which is obviously untenable and fraught with political risks. And not only Arab-majority areas now controlled by a Kurdish-led force, but a Kurdish-led force which is massively backed by a foreign power, the United States. So obviously this is an untenable situation which is fraught with political risk. And uh, finally, over the past couple of weeks, just as the regime has been launching its offensive on Idlib, the Arab population of many um, villages which are occupied by the Syrian Democratic Forces in the northeast of the country, former ISIS territory, the local populace has been rising up and holding protest against the SDF. And finally, um, just a few days ago on May 9th, in uh, the village of Sheil, if I am pronouncing it correctly, in Deir Azor province, SDF fighters apparently opened fire on Arab protesters and killed one. And this came after um, apparently SDF troops carried out a, um, a raid on a, um, on a district of the village where I suppose they were emptying out a pocket of ISIS loyalists or something like that, and um, six were killed. And as we might imagine, since this ugly episode, the protests have only escalated against the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces across Deir Azor province. So with both things escalating terribly in Idlib and in Deir Azor, it is absolutely critical that there be some kind of honest reckoning and dialogue between at least, you know, those of us here in New York City who are supporting the respective revolutionary forces in Syria, the civil resistance in Idlib, and the Kurdish Autonomous Zone in Rojava. Because, you know, as I've, said, as I've said before, the people on the ground are facing very, very, very difficult choices and can be forgiven for taking decisions which put them in a compromised situation. Facing extermination by the Assad regime, the rebels in Idlib can be forgiven for forging an alliance of convenience with Turkey which has its own political and territorial designs on Syria. And similarly, the Kurds, facing the threat of extermination at the hands of ISIS, can be forgiven for having taken the decision to accept aid from U.S. imperialism and to form a, you know, a de facto alliance with U.S. imperialism. But we here in New York City are not facing hard choices like this. And we should be able to look at the whole situation with a degree more distance. Now, a part of taking responsibility for your privilege is not being dismissive and judgmental of those on the ground who, faced with very, very poor choices, have had to make some difficult decisions. But another way of taking responsibility for our own privilege is to not, in our own political line and our own rhetoric, fuel or feed into the forces in Syria that are pitting Arabs and Kurds against each other. And many of those, you know, anarchists here in New York City and the United States and the West who have been rallying around the Rojava Kurds have been slow to acknowledge the fact that the Rojava Kurds have now, you know, been for the past years now, have been groomed by the Pentagon as a proxy force against ISIS, 
and are in a de facto, at least, alliance with U.S. imperialism. And it's going to be uh, very interesting to see how anarchists in New York City and the West react to, you know, the paradoxical and painful reality that anarchist-influenced Kurdish fighters in Deir Azor province are opening fire on protesters, which is not exactly the kind of behavior that one associates with anarchists. Usually anarchists would be on the other side of that equation, wouldn't they? So uh, this really requires some honest grappling. And, you know, I'll point out that, uh, you know, very often the anarchist supporters of the Rojava Kurds here in New York and the United States and the West have played into the propaganda that the Syrian Arab opposition is all jihadist and dismissed the possibility for any kind of solidarity between the Rojava Kurds and the Syrian Arab opposition, despite the fact that there was a moment a few years ago when, in fact, they were allied against ISIS and to a certain extent against the Assad regime. And again, causing my own side, as it were, those of us on the, that very small minority on the uh, on, on the left in in New York and the United States and the West, which supports the general Syrian revolution, the Arab-led civil resistance forces, some of us are guilty of playing into the propaganda that the Syrian Kurdish opposition are all Stalinists and separatists and are collaborating with Assad and Trump. Well, they aren't Stalinists anymore. Some of them, you know, if you actually follow the ideological evolution, the uh, it goes back to the PKK, the main Kurdish rebel body in Turkey, which a generation ago actually was fairly Stalinist. But, you know, they've undergone a um, an ideological evolution and they've repudiated that, that politics and embraced anarchism to a certain extent and embraced, uh, you know, a sort of a Zapatista-informed model of local autonomy. And the Rojava Kurds are kind of in the ideological orbit of the PKK. So no longer Stalinist and no longer separatist. As a part of that whole rethinking, they have uh, the Kurdish revolutionary forces, both within Turkey and within Syria, have repudiated the notion of an independent state. And again, they just want a kind of a Zapatista-informed model of local autonomy in both countries. And it is true that the Rojava Kurds have been, in fact, collaborating with Trump as surreal and paradoxical and painful a reality as it is. It's true they have been. <laughs> collaborating with Assad, that's a little bit more complicated. Um, the leadership of the Rojava Kurds have, in fact, established feelers over cutting a, um, a peace deal with the Assad regime, a separate peace, as it were. But so far, these overtures have been rejected by the regime, which does not want to recognize Kurdish autonomy. So there's overstated pop, uh, propaganda on um, my side as well, which is why I have been calling for years now for dialogue between supporters of the Syrian revolution here in New York City and supporters of the Rojava revolution here in New York City. And it's pretty funny. There are two groups with almost identical names. There's the group I work with, Syria Solidarity NYC. And there's also a group which I'm kind of on the uh, outer fringe of at this point, but I have attended some of their meetings and I've gone to some of their demonstrations. Rojava Solidarity NYC. And you would think that these two groups would be, at a minimum, talking to each other and more ambitiously, actually working together and cooperating. 
But no, that's not the case. And in fact, uh, I'm just going to sign off by mentioning this, that, you know, every year we have a uh, the Anarchist Book Fair here in New York City. And at the one last year at Judson Memorial Church over in Greenwich Village, I was actually on a panel organized by um, Serious Solidarity NYC on support for, you know, the general Arab-led Syrian revolution and civil resistance forces in Syria. And there was another panel organized by Rojava Solidarity NYC on building support quite specifically for the Kurdish revolutionary forces in Syria. And initially, these two panels were quite wisely scheduled back-to-back, one right after the other, in the same space, so that the conversation could just naturally flow from one panel to the other, and that we could finally have the dialogue that needs to be had and to get this whole debate out in the open where it belongs. But then at the very last minute, I believe even after the schedule had actually been printed up, they changed the schedule so that the two meetings were happening in different rooms at the same time, so that it was actually impossible for anybody to attend both workshops. An actual seemingly, maybe I'm just being paranoid, but seemingly conscious attempt to avoid dialogue and to avoid the conversation that needs to be had. So uh, I'm just going to sign off by putting out an appeal. I am calling for Serious Solidarity New York City and Rojava Solidarity New York City to hold a joint workshop at this year's Anarchist Book Fair, which I believe is to be held in September. So I've been trying to uh, establish contact with my comrades in Rojava Solidarity NYC to see if they will agree to this. And then we can jointly, the two groups, Serious Solidarity NYC and Rojava Solidarity NYC together submit a proposal for a joint workshop to the organizers of the Anarchist Book Fair. And so far, my comrades at Rojava Solidarity NYC have been slow to respond. So I'm putting it out publicly. I want this to happen. I am putting this out on my podcast. I want this to happen. And I am particularly now addressing my comrades in Rojava Solidarity NYC and my comrades in among the organizers of the Anarchist Book Fair. Let's make this happen. Let's hold a joint workshop at the Anarchist Book Fair in September and finally have the conversation that needs to be had and get the debate out in the open, okay? And I am not trying to impose my line on anybody, okay? I honestly want to have a dialogue and a debate. And I acknowledge that, you know, quote-unquote, my side has also been subject to its propaganda abuses. And propaganda abuses are just a an inherent <laughs> danger of activism and even more of an inherent danger of war. And war, unfortunately, has been forced upon both the Kurds and the Arabs of Syria. So I am not trying to impose a line. I am just trying to get the debate out in the open and see if we can try to arrive at some kind of posture where at least we aren't stepping on each other's toes and ignoring each other, but can have some kind of cooperation and maybe reach some kind of mutually agreed upon common position. In repudiation of ISIS in repudiation of the Assad regime, in repudiation of all the imperialist meddling 
in Syria. United States, Turkish, Russian, Iranian, Saudi, Qatari, etc. As I always say, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Let's make this happen, guys and gals, my comrades in Syria Solidarity NYC and my comrades in Rojava Solidarity NYC and my comrades in the Anarchist Book Fair. Let's make this happen in September. It's really quite urgent. This has been the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where, once again, all of the facts which I have laid out in this rant tonight are documented and hyperlinked. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. Rant on you next time. <laughs>